0: Good evening, and welcome to the University of Sydney. and Welcome to a special Sydney Ideas talk or discussion or far-side chat um, in partnership with the new Sydney School of Entrepreneurship. Now, I'm Richard Miles, and I'm the Pro Vice Chancellor of Education, Engagement, and Enterprise here at the University of Sydney. But before we start, I'd like to begin the proceedings with acknowledging and paying respect to the traditional owners of the land on which we meet, the Gadigal people of the Aura Nation. It's upon their ancestral lands that the University of Sydney was built. Now, if you can have a discussion about entrepreneurship, there aren't many better people than Ryan Holmes. He is, the sort of word serial, the expression serial entrepreneur is, often, is quite overused, but in his case, it's actually very, very apt. Now, he's obviously worked a lot and founded some very successful businesses in the tech space. But in his early career, he was setting up successful businesses and things as eclectic as paintballing, is that right? And also um, pizzas as well. Now, he's best known to us as the founder and CEO of Hootsuite, which is obviously a platform managing social media. It has over 750 staff and 1.5, over 1.5 million users. Fifteen. Oh, fifteen, 15. I'm that's sorry. <laughs> okay, fifteen, longer. okay. Well, that's even more impressive. <laughs> um, and I think... I think one of the things also that's very important to us is that he's also been incredibly successful in attracting really big funding from serious, serious people. So that's a very important thing for us to remember tonight. Um, And also, he puts his money where his mouth is with the next big thing, which is an entrepreneurship accelerator program. Now, let me make a confession. Universities, and I say this in some trepidation here in the business school, have not traditionally been very good with the entrepreneurs and entrepreneurship. And often, we haven't really known what to do with them. And actually, if you look at, um, I decided to look up on Wikipedia, of course, that great research friend, um, and look up Ryan's alma mater. And it's quite interesting. It says, University of Victoria. And then in brackets, rather than saying sort of BCom or BA ons, it says dropped out. Okay. And actually, if you look at, if you look at entrepreneurs of uh, of Ryan's Vintage, that's actually you know you're in very good company in that way, and I think that's a sign of how much we didn't really used to know what to do with people who had that sort of entrepreneurial mentality and outlook. Now that's changed a lot. I mean, if you look at universities now, we're all rushing into this space with all sorts of research partnerships, business parks, science parks, incubators, accelerators, etc. And one of the best ideas recently. And perhaps one of the best things which um, the New South Wales government has put its money into, $25 million worth, is into the Sydney School of Entrepreneurship, which is a sort of genuine partnership between 12 tertiary education um, organisations within New South Wales. And I think by the time they get up to full capacity, you'll have about a 1,000 um, budding entrepreneurs working with you. That's very much. <laughs> Right. Again, you see, I'm, just, I'm underselling everybody tonight. Um, and here, we've, we, you know, we're lucky tonight to have Nick Kay, who's the CEO, the first CEO of the new school here. Now, with no more ado, let me introduce Nick and Ryan, who are now going to have a, a cozy chat around the topic of making dough.
1: An apt evening for a fireside chat, given the weather out there.
2: Right. Well, it's, uh, it makes me feel very at home as I uh, am headquartered in Vancouver, Canada, which is also a rainforest and uh, very familiar.
1: I've uh, I relocated from Stockholm November last year, and I'm beginning to wonder how different the weather is overall. <laughs> so, Somebody
2: told me that there's more rain in Sydney than in London. Is that, is that a fact? Wow. Amazing.
1: Um, wonderful to be here and have the chance to spend an hour with you all this evening and you know what a great honour. Um, Richard, thank you very much for the warm welcome and we're on song with the new, uh, the new wonderful initiative that I'm privileged enough to represent here tonight, the Sydney School of Entrepreneurship. So it's a, a collaboration between all New South Wales universities and TAFE New South Wales and we're delighted to be a new player in town that will support you concurrent to your, your work within the Sydney University context, and we really look forward to seeing what we can do together and what we can do with our friends in the entrepreneurial community. So, um, the plan tonight is I'll ask Ryan a few questions at the start here, and then... Right. That helps. There we go. Um, I'll ask Ryan a few questions to kick us off at the start here, but I think the real the real uh, gold here is the opportunity for you all to participate. So we'll hand out some microphones uh, before too long and give you just that chance. So please have a think about questions that you'd like to ask Ryan in the meantime. So I've got a host of different things I've been thinking about here, but let, let's go right back to high school and... Uh, you started very early. You know, what was in your mind as you, you began down this path, and we, we were lucky enough to have a bit of a chat yesterday as well, um, the impetus for becoming an entrepreneur and your beginning of that journey, can you remember what you were hoping to achieve or your drivers at that
2: point? So you know, I I, we we talked a little bit about youth entrepreneurship in the introduction, which was uh, you know very cool. And and uh, there are a lot of entrepreneurs. When I go on the road and I um, do straw polls with um, groups of more seasoned entrepreneurs, I ask them how old they were when they started their first business, and it's usually about 50 percent, depending on the group, uh, started their first business often in high school. Um, My mom was an entrepreneur. She um, was a, a had a children's clothing store. Um, I, I think that also another commonality in entrepreneurs is often they have a parent who is an entrepreneur. It reduces the the risk and anxiety of being an entrepreneur, having somebody that you can talk with that, uh, that can give you advice on being an entrepreneur. And um, she did that for me. And so leading up to starting my first business when I was 16, I was always just fascinated. I grew up in the in the middle of the woods in uh, a remote city in Canada. We had actually no electricity, um, and I was always fascinated, even even in this kind of middle of nowhere, uh, with the idea of business. And I think it probably half of it was to just get more you know more allowance, more spending money, so I could go buy candy whenever we went to, to town. Um, but you know, from early days, I was doing things like garage sales where I had one customer who was my my little brother, um, and, and things like that. So it kind of was always there. I, I was always interested in the idea of it. Um, I don't know, you know, if my mom kind of got me involved they're interested in that, but I, I think she did in teaching me, uh, you know, a little bit about business at an early stage. Um, and then from there, I. I I kind of got into my first business, which was my, my paintball company, and that really just started um, as, as uh, thinking about a, an alternative way to, to earn more money and something that was fun. I thought it was, you know, hilarious fun and uh, something that I could introduce <laughs> into the market where I was at, and also uh, I, I managed to convince my parents that I could do this in our backyard, which was in the middle of the woods, so I played to my strength there, and I uh, turned um, where I grew up as, into an advantage.
1: How were you? You mentioned your mother as a role model and how, how were you supported back then in these dreams and this vision to become an entrepreneur? Was there support from outside the family as well, in the community or in an educational setting?
2: There, there wasn't particularly. Uh, you know, I started my first business with savings. And um you know I had a, a dishwashing job leading up to the paintball business, and did that for a couple of years, saved up a bit of money, uh, bought the equipment pretty i bought used paintball equipment, set up a paintball playing field uh, It was all very bootstrapped. and um, and actually, every business i 've done leading up to Hootsuite was bootstrapped and uh, there's relative merits to both bootstrapping and uh, taking financing um, and we you know get into that but uh um, this one was absolutely, you know, self-funded, and and as the business grew, you know, I've been reinvested, plowed the the uh, earnings back in, bought more equipment, expanded the the playing field. But it was a, an amazing environment to be able to, you know, kind of learn business with uh, training wheels on.
1: Just thinking about those early days, and if I understood it correctly, the the um, paintball was through the early stage university days as well.
2: That's right. Yeah, I start, so I started when I was 16, um, so, so it was grade uh, 11, so 11 and 12, which was uh, in, in you know, high school, and then uh, through to uh, a couple of qualifying years in university.
1: And was there a thought at any point back then when it came to that type of business around scalability, for example, and aspirations as to how you would potentially grow something of that nature and the impact you'd want to have? Or was that not part of the equation? Was it still more some income and good
2: yeah, I Yeah, mean, I was always racking my brains with how to, how to scale it. And I have to say that doing that business completely ruined me for being uh, an employee. Uh, at an early age. I had days in that business where in high school where I made five thousand dollars in one day which is pretty amazing. I really beat the pants off of all my friends that were doing um, you know, working at, at flipping burgers and stuff like that, and so you start thinking about that. You're like, wow, this is great. Now, how do you how do you scale it? How do you do more of that? So I was thinking about where do I, how do I open other fields. It had a lot of challenges as a business. so It was seasonal and mm-hmm. uh, you know other things like that. But um, uh, it really got me thinking about you know what I could do with this, and that I loved business and doing business in a big way.
1: And how, how did you take that next step? Did you did you wrap that up and think, okay, now I'm going to take a while to ponder my my next idea, and I'm going to, you know, try to address a few of the things I wasn't able to with this this paintball business, or did Hootsuite or something along those lines begin to form in your mind, and you saw a new so,
3: business?
2: yeah, it's a good question. So I think for the first um, kind of half of my career, actually leading up to uh, Hootsuite, I was in discovery mode, I was always racking my brain. I was trying to get really good and building my expertise around finding opportunity. And I think entrepreneurs love solving problems. And so, you know, created that business. Um, was looking for others. I went to university, as we talked about. I did a couple of years there, and I was waiting for the big, um, the big aha moment. And maybe if I'd gone into year four, but I'd done a lot of the in doing the business for five years leading up to university. I'd learned a lot. I'd learned how to do, you know, do bookkeeping. I'd learned to manage people to a certain extent. I'd learned marketing. I'd learned sales. I'd, I'd learned, you know, public speaking, giving orientations. But I learned a lot. It was it was a very good um, kind of uh, mini MBA. Um, When I got to university, I I found I didn't really get what I was needing at that point, and I I know the world has changed, so uh, people here may be getting exactly what they need, Um, but it just wasn't right for me, and I I do always, I have uh, entrepreneurs and and students of business ask me all the time if they should drop out, and I say, I have no idea, because it is a completely personal decision, and and it was the right thing for me at that time. The point kind of being, I guess, as, as I got more reps up in looking at and, and assessing businesses and business opportunities, you know, Malcolm Gladwell has this concept of 10,000 hours to become a, an expert at something, um, I think I got better and better at understanding um, where there was business opportunity to the point where it started to become dangerous. And that point was probably right when I, right when Hootsuite was taking off, so I Fast forwarding a little bit, mm-hmm. uh, I did the, the paintball field. I dropped out. I started a pizza restaurant. I did that for a couple of years. Sold that in 99. The consumer internet was taking off, and I had to get into this. I was you know, really interested in it. I bought a computer. I holed up, and I self-taught programming, CSS, HTML. Um, and then I, I worked at a dot com for a brief period. And then I I, I the dot com dot bombed. It folded. And then I started an agency and worked the agency for about 10 years. And within the agency, we were doing a hybrid of product and services. So uh, the services, customers would bring, bring us problems. Um, we were building websites. We were helping with search marketing. So it was really interesting input all of the time coming in. The other half of the business, we were building products to kind of solve those needs and we would resell those products. So just getting into this kind of long story right now, but uh, at the point where I realized I I'd kind of understood how to assess and create businesses, I had the agency going. Uh, my my brother, who helped me with the paintball business, was was managing that, and I was building out. We had e-commerce going on that. We were selling a ton, ton there. I had worked with another smaller startup that I helped uh, build out, and then Hootsuite was taking off. So I was involved in four businesses at that point, and I'd realized that I now needed to to focus. Focus. So
1: was Hootsuite a a spin-out of a product from the agency, or was it an amalgamation of products, or how how did you sort of take that step after quite a period in the agency environment?
2: Yeah, so it was was scratching our own itch. And this was, again, the cool thing about... Being in a services business, you have all these problems that you need to solve. And there's always constant uh, input and and, uh, stimulus. So we started doing as as, um, social was taking off, Twitter was taking off. We had customers coming to us asking us to help promote their brands on social media. This is eight years ago now. And so we started helping them as a service. And what we realized very quickly was that there was not a good tool to help manage social media. Um, Multiple accounts, multiple team members, things like scheduling, workflow. And so we just decided that we needed to build a product to help solve this problem. Because we felt we had passion that social wasn't going away, and it was going to become a bigger, bigger problem. Um, and so that was really the impetus, and so we, we incubated it within the agency, um, ran it for a year within the agency, and it started just growing very virally, and then we popped it out as a, stand- as a standalone business. Brilliant.
1: I love that scratch-your-own-itch in terms of you know, really understanding the pain and what a better way to, um, to, then to address something that you've been working with actively for years yes. in that context. Social media and technology, how has it changed since that point in time when you first Decided to spin out the hootsuite concept.
2: So you know, we're, as I said, we're eight years old as of uh, last December. So that makes us grandparents in the space. Um, you know, Twitter, uh, just about I think it's just over ten. Facebook, a little older than that. It's a nascent industry. Um, I would say, in in all of the businesses leading up to it, they were all interesting businesses. We, as as i was saying, personally and also as a team, we were getting our are Malcolm Gladwell 10,000 hours in? Um, and the, the great thing about the category that we ended up being in, uh, as I said, we launched it out and we saw it just growing really amazingly well, um, is that we were on the front of a big wave. And I talk a lot about this for entrepreneurs. Like I've done businesses that were not on big waves, mm. and I've done this one that's on a big wave, and it's a hell of a lot easier doing a business on the front of a big wave. So, like tip number one here, like find a big wave and put your business in front of that, versus doing something that's just a traditional flatline industry that maybe you know it just isn't going. So were, were pizza restaurants really you know going absolutely vertical at that point in time? No, it wasn't really. Uh, scalable scalability issues with paintball. Um, so looking ahead, looking down the road, you know where's the puck going? There are a ton of really interesting trends that are happening right now that if I was thinking about my next business, I would definitely try to plant in front of those versus look at uh, something that's a little more traditional.
1: So there's the, the future forecasting, trend spotting element to it. There's also, I'm really interested in the perfect storm and serendipity in that respect too. And um, are you able to think of any other uh, subsets to your story? Obviously being, being in front of that wave was you know, uh, both great foresight and, and terrific circumstances, but other experiences you've had where serendipity or that perfect storm have delivered something into your lap that might have been beyond what you could have, you know, expected or, or hoped for at that point in time, where sure. the timing was right or the meeting or.
2: Well, you know, I, I'd also maybe look back to the elements that helped us succeed with our business where we, we had early stage competitors. And um, none of those early stage competitors are, exist today. And so what were the elements? So one, being on the wave, we were all on the wave. Mm-hmm. But why did we succeed? I think secondly, um, we started with a small team, a small and a fantastic team, um, who had close to their 10,000 hours of working together. I think that um, we also you know, knew enough to be dangerous. And I think that that's also maybe something that's really good with a, uh, a general business background. I think that entrepreneurs need to be pretty good at a lot of things and really good at a couple of things. Um, you don't have to be an A plus at everything. You have to be maybe a C plus at a lot of things. I, I know how to read an income statement, a balance sheet, a cap table, um, and I can have a, an intelligent conversation with it. It's not my passion i'm I'm a c plus at that. I've got a cFO who is incredible at it, and he can sit in an excel power uh, spreadsheet all day and like talk finance and he loves it. He's passionate about that. so I need to be a c plus there uh, he needs to be an a plus and so I think that if you, you know, kind of pick all of the disciplines of business, um, it's okay to be a c plus because you can bring in the a plus experts, but you got to pick. Something and you gotta and usually the thing that you pick is the thing that you're the best at. So whatever you're the best at, I my my two things that I would be the best at, I would say, or maybe three um, is is product. I'm very passionate about product. I love product. I love nerding out on it. I love thinking about how are we customers onboard into our product. Um, I love uh, marketing. I love. And that really ties well with our business, but I love you know, social media as a marketing channel. I love thinking about how we can get the message out. I love thinking about video. I love thinking about all the stuff that our marketing team does, and I'm, and I'm uh, fairly involved in that. Uh, and then as we've gotten bigger and bigger, culture. And I think that that's pretty important for a company that's at any stage. But as, it, as a company gets bigger and bigger, uh, you need to have somebody that is, helps Um, enable cultural glue and uh, without that as you get bigger your your company I think starts to hit problems and bumps so those are the three things that I am focusing have always focused a lot on Mm. and I continue to focus on
1: You mentioned culture and I'm just thinking sort of throughout this evolution have have you noticed much change in the entrepreneurial culture and setting in the community and around startups or is it really a matter of juggling ideas and forms of culture that have been there over time?
2: Well, you know, so first I'll I'll speak maybe uh, externally. So we're in Vancouver, and so I think actually one of the things that's maybe interesting to this audience is that when we were fundraising and and uh, closing the round, I had a lot of Silicon Valley VCs that I was talking to, and they were asking me if I was going to move to Vancouver or move to San Francisco, and uh, I I told them that I wasn't going to, and you know part of the reason there were some tax credits and incentives in Vancouver. Uh, I had a team there that was highly functioning already. But actually, further to that, um, there was talent there. And, and, and the reality in, in Silicon Valley is if you have a great engineering team, um, you are always a target for the next shiny ball. That, that's coming along. So uh, you know, there's going to be Facebook. There's going to be Google that are looking for engineers. There's going to be um, every single other shiny ball startup that comes along. And that talent is, is going to get um, poached out, or you're going to have to really work hard to retain them. Um, so we stayed in Vancouver. And I think that the point to that is that uh, I think that the attitude has really shifted um, I see VCs traveling much further abroad to look at investment opportunities, and you know I look at this city and and this country, and I think there's, you, startups can happen anywhere. I mean, there's some amazing big startups here. Lassian's super successful, and they've got a great uh, a great business, and there's a number of others that, that I know are here. Um, so, first off, I, I don't think anybody needs to move to Silicon Valley. So that's I think you know something that we've held to be true, and we've we've proven um, to this day. Um, back to your question on entrepreneurs, um, my, one of my passions in what we're doing is to create uh, a, an ecosystem of, of startups within Vancouver and Canada. Mm. Um, we, you know, I, say I, I, I coined this phrase called the Maple Syrup Mafia, um, which is, you know, we're famous for our maple syrup. Uh, so there's, a, there's another group called the PayPal Mafia. And the PayPal Mafia were the alumni of PayPal that started, founded PayPal, ran it, and exited, had a great exit. So um, Elon Musk was an alumni of PayPal Mafia. i 'm going to gap on all the others, but it 's a, it's a really a luminary group of people um, who have now gone on to do great things and they 've invested their their gains and, and, and gone out and been entrepreneurs so my My point on co- coining the maple syrup Mafia is that we need that in Vancouver and every every city needs that i 'm sure that there are Lassian mafia out there right now mm. that are starting other businesses that are are building out and, and, and funding other things as well um, so I think we're starting to see some of that happen in Canada, uh, in Vancouver. We have alumni that have worked at Hootsuite that have gone on to start up other businesses. That's actually, for me, I, I am very um, I'm very honored. It's part of my legacy and part of my purpose, actually, to see and, and grow um, entrepreneurs and success and prosperity through people that have, have crossed my path. So I, I get very excited about that. Uh, we also have a really... Um, be, or I have a really big passion but I think culturally we have a really big passion for entrepreneurships within our company um, mm. and I hate the word entrepreneur, but we have a very entrepreneurial culture. Um, Is that part of how you retain your talent?
1: And you touched on the talent element previously yeah. and you've obviously built a very sustainable and high growth business over yeah. this period. Talent's key to that. How do you keep them, and is this a cornerstone to how you keep that talent interested? And um, in addition, you know, are there other key elements you've been able to address that has kept your workforce in place?
2: Yeah, oh man, there's a there is a long list of strategies and programs and other things that we do to attract and retain talent. Um, I'll, I'll speak just to entrepreneur, like kind of the entrepreneurial aspects sure. right now, because. Um, I think that that's probably most relevant to this audience. Uh, Specifically, you know, I I think that entrepreneurs are very special people. Um, There are a lot of special people out there, but entrepreneurs are are wired in a certain way. They look and they get passionate on solving problems, and I think that if a company um, does not have a certain percentage of entrepreneurial attitude and innovation within it, it is on a path to death. So if you think about maybe some of the big Lumbering giant companies that are out there um, that have lost their entrepreneurial way this this actually was was a light bulb for me where one of our investors Asked me to go and speak to their management team about entrepreneurship And I was like I am just this little scrappy kid from the middle of nowhere And you want me to go talk to they were in New York like all of your New York MBAs about Entrepreneurship I was like I don't know what this is like seven years ago and I, I was like, I, don't, I can't even understand how you need me to go and do that. But He, he said, we don't, we don't know how to do on, innovation, we don't know how to do entrepreneurship. And was, that's you've got a bigger problem than that, I'm not going to go solve that for you. But they were trying to get connected with that. And if you think about it, so we've got a, a business I would call our cash cow. Um, it, is, it just produces revenue, it's going very nicely, we're incrementally improving it, which is good. Um, but we have competitors coming from all over the place chasing after us. So we need to keep ahead of them. But where do we find the next big opportunity? And if we're not out there innovating, um, we're going to have a problem. So when you get a cash cow, you start to put systems in place to protect it. You get a security team. You get a legal team. And the security team makes sure that somebody doesn't come in and accidentally do something and turn off your cash cow. And your legal team makes sure that somebody doesn't accidentally get you sued and your cash cow gets taken away from you. So all these systems are really good. But the problem is that, that you don't have, uh, as they're protected, there's a risk. When an entrepreneur comes in and starts to try to like, tweak with your cash cow, the, the lawyers and the security team are like, don't do that. You're going to break it. So so you have to, and then, the, and then the entrepreneurs are like, well, there's no place for me here. And so they, they head out the door. And so there's a friction within business as it gets bigger that you have to be careful of. And so what we try to do is create areas where people can be entrepreneurial. Uh, we try to create a culture where, where entrepreneurs can take risks within the business. Um, from, I, I have a social contract with my legal team that they are there to support the business and we need to take risks in business. And if we get to the point where the legal team is running the business, then that's a problem. Um, it's very difficult for uh, a young employee uh, to, that wants to float a new idea up and somehow gets in front of legal and legal says, uh, we can't do this. That's a very hard thing for them to battle much past right? Like, are you, they, legal told me I can't. It's a dead end, right? But that, that, it's shades of gray with that. And so I try to always encourage the team. The legal team is, should be saying, there's risk with this, and maybe we're more or less comfortable with it, and we can have a deeper conversation, but it should never be a, this is not mm. going to happen unless it's something that's going to absolutely get us sued. So anyways, long, long answer, but um, I, we do really encourage entrepreneurship. We've done a number of M&As. Mm -hmm. Uh, The M&A's often bring in entrepreneurs, bring in founders. And if I look at my product team, for example, right now, it's almost, it's the vast majority of people on my product team uh, are ex-entrepreneurs. My uh, HR leader and my leader of product are ex-entrepreneurs, they've had a bicycle company. Um, Roger over here is on, our, on my team, and he's uh, been an entrepreneur. And the great thing about entrepreneurs is that they, they, there is no excuse. As an entrepreneur, a leader in a company, you are ultimately accountable for getting things done. And when sometimes when people work in the marketing department or the sales department or the product organization, it's very easy to hit a wall and just say, ah, oh, we can't do that because marketing says we can't, or we can't do that because sales says we can't. I find that entrepreneurs just don't take that as an excuse because they're like, no, I've, I've been in this before, I'm just gonna, we're just going to get this done. And you really have to have that, a lot of that attitude in the company where it's like, no, I'm not going to take that, we just can't do that as an excuse. When you're an entrepreneur and it's your money, your checkbook, you, you get stuff done and you're motivated and that's a great talent for anybody to learn.
1: So on that note, what's the next big thing for Hootsuite?
2: Well, uh, we've, we've just made a number of acquisitions, so right now it's kind of uh, incorporating those into the company, and you know, we're looking ahead. Uh, we just made... Can I get a quick Snapchat, guys? Yeah? Okay. So this is, this is 10 seconds, which is longer than you think, okay? I'm going to go like a little pan across the room, and maybe back, but it's going to take longer, so you guys got to keep the energy up, okay? Is everybody all right with this? Okay? Okay. So... Uh, I'm just going to ask uh, where we're at, okay, and just make some noise. Okay, here we go. Where are we at, guys? Very <laughs> <Ooh, Sydney.
1: laughs>
3: <laughs> Sorry, Sydney.
2: Ten seconds lasts a long time. Um, thank you. Uh, so so uh, what are we looking at ahead? So Snapchat. So who's on Snapchat here? Okay, who's on Instagram here? Same people. (laughs) All right. Um, So yeah, we're looking ahead. We just bought an acquisition uh, around Snapchat, management of Snapchat. Um, We're going to be incorporating that into our product stack and our platform. Um, There's a ton of different innovation that's happening in social right now. Video is obviously huge. These glasses are super cool. They're by Snapchat. They're two hours of recording time. 10-second clips, so a ton of recording time, um, two hours of battery life, $120. Uh, Those are going to be distributed. Um, They've distributed them initially out of vending machines, but they had them at South by Southwest. They sell them online. Um, It's an amazing product. I am predicting that Facebook will have a competitive product out by the end of the year, probably for Christmas. And um, it'll record Instagram. I'll I'll bet you $100. so stay tuned for that. But uh, you know, we're looking ahead uh, at where the market is going. We want to be there. I, I, this is maybe another thing that I, I would just kind of say to people. Um, I, I, a lot of people talk about first mover advantage, and I don't know if I really believe in that. I think that second mover advantage is a pretty great thing. So um, don't get discouraged if somebody's you know, where you think the opportunity is. Think about... Like, for those of you that may remember Friendster, MySpace, lead ups to Facebook, um, those were the first movers and they didn't have advantage. They're kind of often like icebreakers that go burn all of their fuel to break all of the ice and then you come along in your little rowboat afterwards, right? So what's smarter? Um, I, I think that, uh, so we often will let, other people kind of go and build and innovate and we'll look at what we think is cool out there and we'll you know, often take a page out of Facebook and we'll say, hey, that's a really cool idea and let's, let's just build that into our product. Um, so, so again, I think that applies to business in general. If somebody's out there and has done something, it doesn't mean that the idea is done, that it's competition's fair in the market and um, that, that there's, it's never over uh, even if somebody else is doing something like that.
1: So execution is important in that context too. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I'm going to throw the floor open to questions in just a moment. But before that, back in your university days, what might have made a difference to your entrepreneurial journey? What could we be thinking about? We're sitting in these hallowed halls, talking about a new platform between universities. We're thinking differently as we heard today from, from maybe a, you know what we were 10 or 20 years ago. But from your perspective, what would have made a real difference?
2: Yeah, I think probably, uh, well, the Internet has changed everything, right? Like, I I was at the very early stages of the Internet, and there just wasn't a lot of resources there. I think that now there is so much resource available. Mm -hmm. um, For people that want to move fast, I think self-directed learning is a pretty amazing thing. Mm -hmm. Um, I think uh, opening up to, to... Challenging more programs and more courses would be interesting, so you could just challenge a course and just move through your program that much mm. faster. Um, I think that uh, i'm I'm a very experiential learner personally and I think that many entrepreneurs are um, and so you know how can you Uh, You know, you can go do internships and co-ops in the industry. Uh, Why can you not do more of that as an entrepreneur? Now, I don't know if all of this exists and now, uh, you know, you guys are all high-fiving, but those are some things that I think would have made it it a lot more interesting for me.
1: And certainly we're at a point in Sydney, and this applies to all of you too, that in the context of the Sydney School of Entrepreneurship, we're co-creating the opportunities we're offering with all our members. So if you two have personal Interests and and formats that you think we should make sure we definitely haven't missed. And, of course, we're looking at best practice around the world. We're listening to folks like Ryan who are informing those decisions, but we're looking to to really try a lot of new ways of supporting our entrepreneurial community. Um, Just thinking about what you were saying, we we had a bit of a chat about your mentor program last night. Mm -hmm. Could you tell us a bit more for those who haven't heard about it? Because I think that plays back into what we were just speaking of.
2: So so the program's called TNBT, which stands for The Next Big Thing. And uh, the goal of The Next Big Thing is to help identify and accelerate young entrepreneurs between the ages of 17 and 21 years old. And so it came out of, effectively, me thinking back to when I was in high school. I completed my program, uh, or I completed high school. And then I was thinking about what I was going to do next. And um, I felt like. You know, I, there there was this university path, and, and that was kind of what was, um, I think, socially uh, highlighted to me as probably the right thing. I should go get a degree, and you kind of drilled into my head for a long time, and there's nothing wrong with that, but... Um, I thought what would be interesting that really some of the things that you mentioned uh, you know, when, when you asked me about what I thought would have been interesting mm-hmm. is really what we try to do in the program so we open it up to the 17 21 year olds they are people that have had a business already uh, or currently working on a business we uh, it's, a, it's a Canadian program to date but we're looking at how we can create this as a as a, um, a chapter model and we open it up uh, every year we get about a thousand submissions So Canada has a 30 million-ish population. We get 1,000 submissions, 17 to 21-year-olds, and we take uh, 10 to 20 entrants into the program. Uh, We fast-track them on mentorship. We Mm. fast-track them on uh, a boot camp, six-month boot camp of entrepreneurialism, um, and bring in all sorts of amazing speakers. And and they get access to an incredible network of of speakers. We've had a really generous amount of people that have come out and given their time because um, a lot of entrepreneurs remember what it was like when they were young entrepreneurs. And so and maybe another thing for all the young entrepreneurs that I didn't know about back in the day is that uh, these big captains of industry that are out there, you know, are, that they, they can take a shining to a passionate young entrepreneur. So if you figure somebody that you really need to get in front of and you do something clever and you kind of chase them down a little bit, um, very often I think they'll be receptive to just giving you a little bit of time and maybe some thoughts.
1: It's an amazingly generous culture and community, I think, on a global basis. Entrepreneurs and the way they remember those initial hard yards and for the right impassioned people are willing to share. Your turn, folks. So we will open the microphones. We have two at the back. Um, Might we start with this lady on my left, please? And then if we could have hands up for the next question and we'll prime with gentleman in the middle there, please.
4: Hi. Hello. I'm going to concentrate on the specific place we're in um, at a certain point in time. Um, it seems like here you are at a university giving us a motivational speech about entrepreneurship. And it's interesting to me that there were two outstanding things. One was that you referred to Malcolm Gladwell three times as your inspiration. Uh, That's that's Malcolm Gladwell, the artist?
2: No, the author. The author.
4: Okay, another artist. I'll I'll take that. (laughs) Um, The other is you were highly performative with your goggles, and I think you got the kind of right reaction. And those, those goggles were designed by someone. Um, Now, we're at a time of innovation and we're at a time where there's a lot of philanthropy going into universities, um, where the university is now exceeded by two years. It's it's, uh, achieved its target two years early for um, philanthropy of $6 billion. And at the same time, it is poised to close Sydney College of the Arts, its Visual Arts College, And the marketing problem has been one which includes no philanthropy for over 10 years. So I would like to ask you I know it's out of your league in a way, but about what ethos you would encourage this university to do to embrace um, the program that is involved in innovation and where clearly. an artist and a designer uh, have been quite important in terms of your presentation and your product development.
1: Could I maybe try and try and um, put that in a context? Just I'm thinking it locally and I, I appreciate what you're saying. I think for us it's really important in the context of the Sydney School of Entrepreneurship to bring together a variety of disciplines of which designers and artists are a very important part. Um, how, when you're, so I'm going I'm to steal the question a little bit, but I hope address it to your satisfaction in the meantime. When, when, when you look at uh, your, your team and your staffing, how do you think about that interdisciplinarity and how do you think about artists and engineers? I mean, is there a very conscious mix of disciplines and attributes or does that take a life on given the
2: nature of the needs of the roles? so uh, I hope to speak to both on this so so first off um my agency that I founded in two thousand we uh did a variety of uh projects and products along the way um, often very design centric so building of websites, building of branding logo um design et cetera um and then also building of applications so the right and the left brain having programmers and coders and then having designers that uh, make it usable and beautiful. And uh, funnily enough, when you put an engineer in a room and you say, here's the problem I want to solve, and they go and build it, and you, put, you, you get it built from an engineering perspective, and then you kind of, I, I call it put lipstick on at the, the end, um, it, it, it never seems to work very well. Um, we do a design-led development where we will radically prototype every single interaction, every single screen um, that a user will click through to get to actions and, and achieve a goal. And um, that was something that we learned very early on, that we had to lead with design. And design-led development produced better results for us than the opposite, development lipsticked with design. So um, I guess where I'd get to is when we started building Hootsuite in our our application, we had a very talented designer, our left brain, and a very talented engineer who are still with the company and have uh, very important roles within the company. Um, I'm a a huge proponent of good design. I think that good design can make and break companies. I think that good branding is important. Um, Our our logo and our brand is known by millions of people across the planet. Um we have a cute owl. <laughs> by the way, are you ready to catch we we give owls for people that ask questions. <laughs> nice one. <laughs> um, so so you know back to a little bit more of the specifics like I I'm sorry I don't understand the local politics and the and the in and what was in that arts program yes, it's probably this you Yeah
4: large, yeah. mm-hmm.
3: mm-hmm.
2: Well, I think that art and design is very important, and I think that um, there there should be art in society, and, and I don't really have much more than that, probably. So my to to the is that
0: right. we think the same thing too, on like an discussion. Yeah. yeah. Hmm.
1: We had a gentleman in the middle at the back. Yes. Uh,
0: yes. So my question is a bit more simple. Um, I would say it's um, more around trends. So you mentioned before um, video is massively key for social media. You've got Snapchat and Facebook diversifying into actual physical products. So simply, where do you see the next trend within social media going as this is your level of or your area of um, expertise? Just quite keen to see where maybe the next five... Well, 10 years you see how it's going.
2: Hey, we're 8 years old, so <laughs> 10 years down the road is a long way. But uh, So there are some amazing big trends coming up. AI, huge trend. Uh, AI is going to change how we interact with brands. Um, there are, if you think about the number of, of questions that a large brand gets asked every day by its customers, it is it is pretty overwhelming. There are um, millions of questions for big brands that need to get answered, um, so AI can help with that it can help understand intent it can help understand where customers are are customers happy um, so that's that uh, that 's a little bit further out. Um, more near term bots are kind of dumb ai they're they 're like the a call tree that you would call and press one for this press two for this that 's a near term opportunity that 's there. Um, but, uh, there are a number of other, you know, big trends outside of social that are, you know, coming up in, in the, the next few years. So, you know, autonomous self-driving vehicles, what are going to be the opportunities out of that? Um, the list goes on and on.
0: I don't know if anyone heard, but I'm saying Facebook being used more as a, as a, um, a search engine now, for example, like a Google is that something that they're definitely trying to go down? Is there anything, for example, within your business that can incorporate an element of that, um, facilitating through Facebook? I don't know.
2: Yeah, it's going to be really interesting to see what Facebook does in the next little while. Um, is Facebook going to get into commerce? I don't know. If they do, they're the world, world world's largest bank in a heartbeat. Um is a possibility that they start to do peer to peer payments and you know what does that look like? uh I know that Google and Facebook are in a very um heated battle and it's kind of a battle of philosophy around uh, walled garden versus open garden and um that it's going to be really interesting to see how this plays out and uh they both have amazing economic engines uh so they're both you know very relevant and important companies um there is a lot of innovation going on. Right now, they're both battling to get the last uh, 4 billion people on the planet connected to Internet. They both have pretty aggressive programs. Google is floating Mylar balloons up in, a, in an array grid to get uh, Africa online. Uh, Facebook has a solar airplane that they want to do the same thing, run a grid on Uh, to get the the last four billion people on the planet wired. And why do they want to do that? And why do each of them want to do it? They want to do it so that they have the last four billion as their customers and that their first experience with the Internet is through their uh, interface. So uh, pretty interesting and exciting times over the next little while.
1: So we have a young man representing those budding entrepreneurs that we look forward to seeing more of at university. Uh,
2: Um. So I'm from Canada, so go Canada. Go Canada, all right. Um, and my question is, wait, so I want to be an entrepreneur when I grow up, and I have a lot of teachers who inspire me. I wanted to know, when you were
3: young, did you have any teachers who inspired you in any way?
2: Yeah, I did. I had a number of teachers that were amazing at helping me along my way. Um, I had a librarian and grade five who taught me how to uh, program and started my love of computers. And um, quick story, but I mentioned I grew up in the, in the forest, in the woods, in the middle of nowhere. We didn't actually have any electricity. Um, but at one point, uh, I entered into a computer programming contest in grade five, okay. and I won. The grand prize was a computer. Oh, and right. it was due to this, this uh, great uh, librarian who taught me how to program. But... Um, I had a computer, but I didn't have any electricity. <laughs> <laughs> so, so my dad actually took it to an electronics shop, and he got the, the computer rewired. And every day, I'd come home after school, and I'd pop the hood on my mom's car, bad, car, and get some alligator clips, and stick it on the battery. And I'd play on the computer with a kerosene lamp beside me. So anyways, that was one great teacher. I had a number of great teachers along the way yeah. um, that taught me a, a number of different things. But why do you ask about teachers?
3: Um, well, I have,
2: a, I have some teachers who inspire me.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: Um, like my math teacher and my English teacher, they inspire me to get better every day.
3: Right. And
2: they also believe in me and believe I can do something special. So I really um, admire that about them. Good. Well, it sounds like you're on a good path.
3: Thank okay. you. In combination. The youngest person in the audience, Where are you at here? followed by probably the oldest person in the oh, audience. There
2: you are. <laughs> <laughs> All right.
3: When I was young, I used to think that I'd be an entrepreneur. I had a couple of opportunities, realised that I didn't really have the spirit, mm. what it takes, because I made too many mistakes. But I, and I didn't acquire any mentors, by the way. That is the biggest mistake I made. But looking at Facebook. It probably is one of the most successful companies, uh, not just because of what it is now, but it started off as a Me Too, and it continues, so far anyway, to stay ahead of the game. What is, What do you think it is that they have that enables them to continue to innovate, keep their staff, and continue to grow, Uh and what do you? How What do you learn from them? What have you learned from them?
2: So, um, first off, I think that they, they were in an um, at the beginning of an amazing wave, and so that you know, we talked about that. A me too. They they were a me too, yeah, and they they did it with a great execution in terms of how they went to market. So they uh, unlocked universities, and the universities got on board and guess what that demographic that they led with left university brought more friends in the network had very viral effect to it um, so, so they made the product, they made themselves sexy and desirable, <laughs> and
3: exclusive.
2: they made themselves sexy desirable and exclusive like everybody in this room <laughs> <laughs> and and then from there they did a great job, but they also um, they have a, an amazing product visionary that is leading the company, um, who worked amazingly hard to make it all happen. Um, they a lot of it's luck, you know. Uh, the difference between MySpace and and Friendster and them, you know, you could say it was luck as well. Timing, um, sometimes things just need to be at the perfect timing for them to really take off. Um, and so they had that going for them as well. If you, if you, I think it was in the movie, but also I know there are some emails floating out there that Mark Zuckerberg sent to some people saying just talking about this fun little project he was working on. He had no idea it was going to be as big as it became. And I had no idea that it was going to be as big as it became. And you talk to any entrepreneur out there, more or less, uh, they had no idea. Um so you know I think that uh they they managed to also create an amazing engineering and product culture one of the best or the best on the planet um people that are working so hard that are aligned on a vision and that actually is really important when you hit scale to have alignment on your purpose as a company and they do that um a- and I think they are doing I'm something years, years, like- Sorry yeah so as uh, yeah, with, with the people that are your team, your, your workforce, so as you get bigger, something that I've felt and is important is to make sure that our team really understands what we're doing, why we're here, why we wake up every day, what is our purpose. And it's easy when you're three people kind of just huddling around and like, all right, our purpose is to make sure that we can pay our credit cards and rent this month. That's a good purpose. Uh, as you get bigger, that purpose gets a little bit more difficult and getting alignment around that is more important because you want to make sure everybody's going in the same direction and you don't have some people that think your purpose is this and other people think your purpose is this. Um, So they have a a pretty solid purpose that they're out there trying to achieve. Um, One last bit. Uh, There's a video on YouTube about Colonel Sanders. Check it out. It's the most inspirational story ever really cool.
1: Thank you. Now we've got one, where do we have the mics? One mm. over here next, please.
3: You mentioned about uh, it's good that uh, you should be a second mover rather than first mover. But you also mentioned that company should put its product in front of the wave. But if a company misses the opportunity of being the first mover, so, so how can it, it put its product uh, in front of the wave? Won't it miss the opportunity? And there are many companies that, uh, when they fail, they, they usually blame that they, they, they did not have the advantage of being the first mover.
2: Yeah, I, I don't believe that that's, that that's true. I think that people think that the wave is happening, but the wave hasn't even hit. Like Friendster thought that they were on the wave. MySpace thought they were on the wave. And there were a lot of things that needed to happen. Like the backbone of the Internet, where you know a lot of the fiber that makes... Facebook work wasn't there for for Friendster. So they were hosting incredibly expensive server centers to try to keep their their service up. And they were crashing all the time. Um, guess what? Like six years, seven years later, when Facebook came along, that underlying infrastructure was there, and the wave was actually ready to happen. So what they did, though, is they, they painted a vision of what types of connectivity humans wanted. And they saw that something was there. Um, the product wasn't good enough. And, and they, they, you know, back to that icebreaker analogy, MySpace and Friendster wasted tons of money trying to make something very expensive work, which became a third or less the cost by the time Facebook came to do it. And so the unit economics worked. Um, so pick your industry, I, I truly believe that that's probably true for uh, a lot of different startups out there, um, I, I would consider consider thinking about that. I'd also say that, that there are cases where uh, winner takes all, and if you think about um, the difference between first and second place, it can be a really big difference. So the difference in valuation between an Uber and a Lyft is significant. Um, the difference between Google and Bing is pretty significant um, as, as search engines go. Uh, so once you establish that you can be the winner and you're on the wave, then I think you really need to go big. And, and so a you know, couple thoughts on that. I don't know if that answers your question.
3: There are many companies that uh, that have the advantage of first mover as their core values. So, what do you think about that?
2: Well, I mean, so so take um, first movers their core values. Some some companies make it work. I think like so take Apple and, and Microsoft, right? Like they were early in the space, but there were also a ton of other competitors there. So, you know, were they truly first mo- movers? I mean, you could say IBM was the first mover but Apple and Microsoft have built really amazing businesses. It's, uh, I think in web, uh, in, in internet technology, I don't, I don't always believe first mover. Mm. Thank you very much. So an owl over there, and we have another question here.
4: Um, okay, so I'm from Montreal, by the way.
2: Wow, Canadians all over. <laughs> <have> all the, <laughs> <Canada>. <laughs> all the plants.
4: Um So I have a few questions I'm going to try to... Mm. So... My main question is how do you keep the focus Um, and so in a context I'm interested in social entrepreneurship so I'm in international development and I'm very curious and very active but in so many different things and sometimes I get lost so how what is your advice on how to be focused and really stay on one project and also when do you know that you know enough to actually start something um, because the main difference, I think, in a social, then, in a technical, in a technical, well, you can learn how to do things. Social, you have to, it's very complex, I think, and when do you know you actually know enough to really act on it?
2: Mm-hmm. Uh, those are great questions and pretty timeless, and it's something I've struggled with myself. So uh, how do you know um, when to pick the one Uh I, it's a challenge. I, I've I've locked down on certain wa- the ones for periods of time in my life, um, which weren't really the ones, but they got me further down the road to in my entrepreneurial journey. So you know the odds of you hitting the one uh, the first time you go for something is probably pretty unlikely. Um, maybe more e- easily to, to do in the world of of internet, but I think it's also uh, starting to become you know, maybe more practical for entrepreneurs to think about this way is fail fast. And uh, the idea is from fit for fit in fail fast is you put a concept out there, you work on it for a period, you see if it resonates with people. If it doesn't, you scrap it with discipline. And that is hard to do because you've worked on this thing, you're trying to grow this little baby and to just scrap it is very difficult. Um, but that is a, is a very popular concept in in internet development and and startup culture uh, right now. Um, it may be something that you can apply to you know what you're looking at doing and 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 think about.
1: Thank you. So we've got a question up here, and could we have a microphone just straight up behind you on the left, please?
2: So I come from Sri Lanka, and um, we had a 30-year civil war, which ended in 2009. Um, so, I would say we have a pretty risk-averse society um, and it's, right now it's more about stability. And um, you know, as, as my parents or my friends' parents would say, you know, it's about finding a stable job and not going out and doing something like entrepreneurship. So if, um, if you had em- governments from emerging markets coming up and asking you, um, what can we do to uh, to create a more entrepreneurship-friendly environment? Like, what policies we can put in place? What would you suggest? Wow! Um, <laughs> Statesman hat. <laughs> That's a big question. Uh, you know, I, I believe that um, entrepreneurs find opportunity wherever um, wherever it is. I think that. Um, so I've, I had the the privilege of meeting up with um uh the founder of SoftBank a number of years ago, uh, his name Son, and he um was at one point the richest man in the world. Uh he brought Yahoo to Japan and uh owned the biggest uh, one of the top uh mobile companies there. He had at at kind of 98 had more money on paper than than Bill Gates did. And then the dot com crash happened and he was just Drop to the richest man in Japan, but um, he was an immigrant he was a Korean immigrant uh, to Japan um, He rocked the status quo and um, there's uh, a great expression that it, you know in the in the land of the blind, the man with one eye is king, and if everybody you know where you're at is risk adverse and you're one taking more risk there's i think a higher propensity for you to have success uh, in an entrepreneurial way so um as with regards to the, to the government uh, component, um, are, are you, if you're getting into government, are you thinking about getting into government and policy, and that, or you do want to be an entrepreneur? <laughs> then just go and do it. <laughs> <laughs> Who cares? <laughs> is, is the government stopping you from doing it? Yeah.
1: Uh, Can I piggyback on that? So tax credits and other incentives, and you touched on them. So I've recently moved from Stockholm, and there have been a lot of entrepreneurs there making decisions based upon other incentives and opportunities of basing in London or elsewhere in the world. How... At which... (laughs) Trying to be a little diplomatic about it, but you know, at which point and how how much does that really influence an entrepreneur's decision to get going? I have a little trouble. I, I don't think it should at all. Does. I mean,
2: so I did name that as one of the reasons. Uh, I think it was the smallest reason. And if we kind of look back, yeah, we saved a bit of money um, in the early days, but I think it, it's a terrible reason to knock it into business yeah. uh, or to choose where you do business. Um, again uh, the the help from government is nice, but it shouldn't dictate if there's an opportunity that you see that is an amazing opportunity, then go and chase it because it's an amazing opportunity, whether you save five, ten, twenty percent on tax or whatever it is, like that that should be the least reason for doing it. You should be doing it because there's huge upside.
1: And maybe it's the context that's offered in too, so I've heard many different arguments around. I think Australia is a wonderfully interesting um, arena to look at too but I hear many entrepreneurs saying uh, obviously they need to be in connected parts of the world, they need the talent to be there but there are so many other factors when it comes to lifestyle and opportunity today that, that the tax credits and those other incentives are just one of many, many components. Yeah, Absolutely. Next question, we have one up the back here. It
3: yeah.
2: feels great to be with a few Canadians in the room. I'm also from Vancouver.
1: All right. <laughs>
2: yeah, I think my question doing is... doing this deliberately. <laughs> yeah. So what's your favorite mistake as an entrepreneur? Oh, wow. <laughs>
1: um, what was the biggest challenge you saw out?
2: The biggest challenge. <laughs> you know, it's it's been... Um, so So leadership is... Uh, learning in the in the open, you're kind of learning in front of people, and and growing as a leader has been a really interesting opportunity. Um, I feel really blessed with how um, you know I've been able to grow with this company, um, and uh, yeah, I've made I've made a number of mistakes. The the hardest thing actually for I think a number of years. Um, and, and I still find it difficult, but um, uh, letting go of people. And and when you've worked with somebody uh, for a long period of time and they've been in the trenches with you and uh, they share your vision, so you as a leader talk with somebody seven, eight years ago about your vision and what you want to build, and they... They sign up for that, and they're like, "Yeah, let's go get it." And you're kind of like a cult leader, you know. You're just getting all these people to believe in this crazy thing that doesn't yet exist, um, and they they go with you on that journey. And then you get to a point where um, they can't help you anymore, and that's really hard. Um, having that conversation, really hard. And um, I think that's been um, probably my biggest learning is around that but the probably the learning is that um, you're not doing anybody any favors by not having that conversation uh, I absolutely try to do whatever I can to get people to where they where they can succeed and be amazing um, and and if we're, we're not able to get there um, it doesn't help them it doesn't help me and and if uh, you know if if we we fail together it's 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 just not going to work right so it's better that we you know sh- shake hands and part ways respectfully and and have that tough conversation than to to limp along because i think people you know historically we, as we were scaling really fast they got loaded up and loaded up and they were you know some people were drowning and they they needed that they when i had conversation with one person he's like why didn't you talk to me sooner i've been dying for the last they were just waiting for me to talk to them and um, you know, as a, as a manager and a leader. So very challenging, um, but you've you got to have those conversations.
1: Unfortunately, uh, being true to our timing, we're going to have to stop questions at this point tonight. Thank you all so much for a wonderful, wonderful set of questions. And of course, Ryan, uh, it's been an honor and a pleasure. I'm going to hand the floor back to our terrific hosts, uh, all of the University of Sydney team, thank you very much for having us here tonight. Richard, thank you especially.
0: Well, look, thank you. Can we also thank, first of all, can we thank Meredith and the Sydney Ideas team? They did a really good job putting <laughs> this together. <clears throat> and thank Nick, for being a fantastic, and a really fantastic compare, really drawing out lots of interesting stuff there. Thank you. And look, and, 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 to, and to you, Ryan, I mean, I, okay, I have to confess, I go to lots of talks, and I go to lots of things like this. But I found this, and I think everybody else did, I found this, you know, I found you know, your contribution to be truly eloquent, generous, and really, really inspirational. And if I had my time again, then maybe I would have been a, <laughs> done what you did instead of uh, becoming a university professor. <laughs>